Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Katie, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Okay, thanks, Katie. Well, hello and welcome, everyone, to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name, indeed, is Madge Kaplan. I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and I serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. They are designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an an article and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, we have two featured authors, Dr. Judith K. O'Keen and Dr. David H. Barad. They are first and second authors, respectively, of the article, Symptom Experience After Discontinuing Use of Estrogen Plus Progestin, published in the July 13th issue of JAMA. Dr. O'Keen is a professor of medicine and chief of preventive and behavioral medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She's been a principal investigator of the NIH-funded Women's Health Initiative and has most recently focused her research on women's health and factors affecting morbidity, quality of life in older women, and intervention approaches for working with low-income and culturally diverse populations. Dr. David Barad is an associate clinical professor in the Departments of Epidemiology and Social Medicine and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He is a co-investigator in the Women's Health Initiative, chairs its Hormone Advisory Committee, and practices in Manhattan at the Center for Human Reproduction. Welcome, Dr. O'Keen and Dr. Barad. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Terrific. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. O'Keen's and Dr. Barad's findings is Dr. Uma Kodagal. Dr. Kodagal is Vice President for Quality and Transformation and leader of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pursuing Perfection Initiative at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Kodagal is also the Director of the Center for Health Policy and Clinical Effectiveness, which focuses on the development, implementation, and study of intervention focused on improving the health of children. Dr. Kodagal, good to have you with us. Thank you, Madge. Happy oh. to be here. Uh, okay. The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author, or in our case today, authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. We know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is delivered can be daunting. So that's why each author in the room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert. He or she suggests how to first plan, then try out some new ways of doing things on a small scale, observe the results, refine your methods, and eventually come to a place where the change or changes have the desired impact and can be fully implemented. And that's the role Dr. Kodagal will be playing today. 
the way our hour together will go is as follows. Dr. O'Keen and Dr. Barad will spend 10 to 15 minutes summarizing their research. Dr. Kodigal will then take about 10 minutes to describe some improvement methods and suggest ways to apply these research findings to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, very close to it, we'll turn to questions from callers and some discussion. So be thinking all along of the things that you would like to bring up today. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author-in-the-room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. We ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you. We thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. There are about 70 registered for our call today. Members of the media may be present on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA website. Welcome all. We're going to get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Judith O'Keen and Dr. David Barad, who will provide an overview of their newly published research. Uh, welcome both of you to Author in the Room, and we're very excited to hear about your findings. Okay, thank you, Madge. Um, I'll introduce our study, and, and Dr. Barad will go over the results, and then I'll come back to the conclusions. Uh, for many years, women have used menopausal hormone therapy, or MHT, for relief of vasomotor symptoms. The most common preparation used for MHT was, and is, conjugated equine estrogens and medroxyprogesterone acetate, or CEE and MPA, or estrogen plus progestin. Apart from symptom relief, MHT was once believed to have many health benefits. However, in July 2002, the Women's Health Initiative Estrogen Plus Progestin Randomized Clinical Trial, which included over 16,000 women, found that the health risks of using MHT, such as increased um, heart disease, exceeded the benefits, such as prevention of fractions. The WHIE plus P trial participants represent a large, unique cohort of women who underwent a sudden withdrawal from active combined hormones or placebos when the trial stopped. Their experience is potentially very relevant when we consider the treatment of other women who are postmenopausal. Current recommendations for MHT use focus on treatment of symptoms using the lowest effective hormone dosage for the shortest duration possible. Yet, there was very little information available about the effects of stopping hormones on either symptoms or health-related quality of life. Our article reports on hot flashes or night sweats and other symptoms. It also reports on use of alternative strategies for managing symptoms and the perceived effectiveness of these strategies among the E plus P trial participants who responded to a survey mailed out 8 to 12 months after they were instructed to stop their study pills. And Dr. Barad will go over the methods and the actual results. Thank you, Dr. O'Kane. Um, we, con we conducted a survey of the 9,351 women who were still taking combined hormones or placebo when the estrogen plus progestin intervention 
and the Women's Health Initiative was stopped. These women represent slightly more than half of the original E plus P hormone trial cohort. Close to 90% of the eligible participants responded to the survey. The survey included questions about symptoms and management strategies and the usefulness. We used logistic regression to model vasomotor symptoms and pain or stiffness symptoms as functions of former treatment arm and of baseline symptoms. We adjusted for baseline variables of age, race, prior hormone use, smoking, alcohol use, and BMI. The respondent's average age at the trial stop date was around 69 years, and they'd completed an average of 5.7 years of taking study pills. We found that women who had used hormones during the trial had more than five times, almost six times, the odds of reporting moderate or severe vasomotor symptoms after discontinuing study pill use, and twice the odds of reporting pain or stiffness symptoms. After stopping study pills, the prevalence of each symptom surveyed was greater among women who had formerly used hormones during the trial. Both vasomotor symptoms and pain or stiffness were more likely in women who also reported these symptoms at baseline. The typical woman who begins menopausal hormone therapy for management of symptoms is in early menopause. Among our participants who were 50 to 54 years old at baseline, more than half of the women using combined hormones who had symptoms, such as hot flashes, before starting their study pills also experienced these symptoms after discontinuing hormone use. Women reported a wide range of strategies to manage these symptoms and found most of the strategies to be very helpful. The most commonly used strategies were drinking more fluids, starting or increasing exercise, um, and talking to a clinician. Around 5% of all respondents chose to start hormone therapy after stopping their study pills. Compared to women who had used placebo during the trial, women who were using hormones during the study were more likely to report starting hormones after stopping the study pills. The most frequent reason given for starting hormones after having stopped them were symptom management reported by about 55% of the former hormone users or um, physician's advice, which was reported by close to 60% of the women who chose to use hormones who had formerly been in the placebo group. Judy? Yes. Okay. Dr. O'Kane, thank you. Okay. Thank you, David. Um, the, this article provides the first published data on symptoms and management strategies reported by a large and diverse sample of relatively healthy postmenopausal women after discontinuing uh, CE plus MPA or placebo. More than half of the women with vasomotor symptoms at randomization to active CE plus MPA also reported these symptoms after discontinuing use of the study pills. However, these participants did not include women who were unwilling to be randomized or who had stopped taking their study pills earlier than the time that the trial was stopped. The findings from this article or from the research that we did should be considered when advising women 
to treat menopausal symptoms with hormone therapy for as short a duration as possible. Although the effectiveness women attributed to any strategies they tried may be related to a potential placebo effect, the differences seen in the therapies tried and the relative effectiveness of each are important discussion points in clinical practice. And this leads us into uh, the following potential clinical improvement um, strategies. The first is we can no longer, based on the results of this study, tell women who are experiencing menopausal symptoms to simply take menopausal hormone therapy for as short a period of time as possible and then stop. Into this discussion, we need to incorporate the information that menopausal symptoms are likely to return when they stop menopausal hormone therapy. Therefore, if women are taking hormone therapy for symptom relief, they may decide not to, given the potential health consequences and potential return of symptoms. A second uh, strategy uh, coming out of this first one is that we can help women, we, at least we can work with women, to help them decide to potentially try one or two other strategies for a period of time before they start menopausal hormone therapy uh, for short-term therapy. Also coming out of this, we can help women to focus on self-management and self-awareness of symptoms and on what they can do to decrease them so that women can become, in many ways, their own monitor and their own sort of clinician. One way women can do this is to first keep a log of symptoms for a few days in which severity and frequency are noted. Then they can start on an agreed upon treatment such as potentially increasing exercise and continue to keep a log for a week or so, again noting severity and frequency. Using all of this information, they can observe if any changes occurred and how symptoms uh, compared to those prior to use of any strategy. Uh, we do hope that you will find some of this information useful, and I'll now turn this over to Madge. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Dr. O'Keene and Dr. Barad. Uh, a very, very uh, interesting uh, advance on our understanding of these issues. Uh, we began our Author in the Room series with some discussion of hormone therapy, so it's very, very interesting uh, to be discussing it again. We now want to turn to what the research and our author's recommendations do suggest about changes in clinical practices. Uh, Dr. O'Keen has kind of gotten us going here. Uh, Dr. Kodigal, we turn to you now uh, to sort of follow on these uh, to kind of help us, uh, help navigate for us uh, how we might uh, further this notion of clinical improvement here. Uh, thank you, Madge, and uh, thanks everyone, particularly Dr. O'Keen and Dr. Barad. I think this study is deceptively important and has given us good evidence that has significant implications in daily practice for a large segment of the population. Dr. Barad and Okino also provided sound rationale from a broad spectrum of patients. So how do we think about applying this in our practice so that our patients receive the benefit of the most recent knowledge? The value of good research is to provide guidance in how we practice and update the way we provide care. My role today would be to help take the lessons from this study 
and decide how to improve the way we practice on a daily basis. I will briefly review how we go about these sorts of changes to achieve the outcomes we desire. Our main guide in doing this is something called the Model for Improvement. This very simple but powerful tool for driving improvement will help us apply this new knowledge. In fact, as healthcare professionals, the method of system improvement should look very familiar to us for a variety of good reasons. It is, in a sense, the scientific method applied to management and improving processes. The process of organizational and practice improvement has two parts. The first part is about stating your hypothesis. The second part is about testing your hypotheses. Let's think about the first part now, stating your hypothesis. This has three components. First, set clear aims that everyone understands. That is specifically, what is it that you're trying to achieve? In this case, we might say that our aim is to assist women in making choices that help their symptom relief and functional outcomes be better. Second part of the first component is to establish measures so you can tell if the changes you test in your small experiments are leading to improvement. In this case, Dr. O'Keefe has given us some ideas about a possible log that patients could keep that would tell us their symptoms were getting better as a result of the tests that they conducted that you helped them do. The third is to identify testable changes that are likely to do, be leading to improvement. What is the hypothesis about the changes you make in your practice that will lead to the outcomes you desire? So again, clear aims, establishing measures, identifying testable changes. All this based on data and a solid hypothesis. Now, the second part of testing this hypothesis is actually to run mini-experiments or small tests of change. This is not the same as experimenting on patients. It is more in line with testing rapidly rational changes in the way you practice in order to achieve safe, demonstrable improvements in care. This is something that we do every day. The purpose of the model for improvement is to have you do it in a more organized manner so you could understand the results of those changes and systematically build upon what you learn. In improvement language, the process of testing a hypothesis, running these small tests or experiments is called a plan, do, study, act, or a PDSA cycle. The process, as I said, is deceptively simple and includes planning a test, perhaps having a patient keep a log of symptoms for a week, doing a test, testing this idea on three women, collecting some data at the end of the day, looking at three women and their logs to see what, it look, what their curves look like, and studying the results. And finally, acting on what you learned by rapidly running subsequent small tests. So perhaps the first test on one woman, the second test on three women, the third test on a larger number of patients. 
in the quality, if the quality improvement language of a PDSA doesn't sit well with you, think about it as a scientific method in action that is using scientific method for rapid action-oriented learning. Using the best available knowledge, you have to try something, measure and understand the results of that trial, and fold that learning into the next trial to further your understanding. At a minimum, hopefully this explanation will help you be more conversant with the quality improvement personnel in your local healthcare system. The last topic to measure is implementation. When are you ready to stop testing and to start implementing? Testing changes also helps you understand the logistics of implementation. When you run successful tests of change and understand their results, you're obviously more informed about critical implementation issues and that the team is ready to implement the changes on a larger scale. So for example, testing it with one physician versus implementing it in an entire clinic. Now, Dr. O'Keen and Dr. Barad have made several recommendations based on the study, and I want to think about two of them first. The first, I think, that Dr. O'Keen and Barad mentioned was to have the conversation with women around the use of hormone replacement therapy and the reversal, if you will, of the effects on symptom relief. Uh, Dr. O'Keen or Dr. Barad, would you talk about what practice you might implement or what you've already tested in your practice as a result of this new knowledge that it would allow you to have that dialogue better with women? Um, I'll, I'll start if that's okay. Um, but one is to have materials available, for example, in your waiting room uh, that talks about menopause and menopausal symptoms um, that also notes in these materials, ask your, your clinician or, um, to discuss this with you. So some suggestions of possible of ways of helping to um, work with menopausal symptoms that can sort of uh, motivate the, the woman to uh, begin that conversation. Although I think as Dr. Barad and I agree that this is one kind of conversation that uh, women are usually not shy about asking help with. Um, I think a second question that I have is, is, is the use of patient logs, I mean patients keeping a chart of their symptoms, have you tested that in your practice and um, how likely do you think uh, I mean, some people think about this as a very complicated thing to do. In your view, how easily can this be done? Um, I have tested it with some women, um, and what we find is, you know, clearly anything you ask someone to do, they've got to be motivated to do it and see that there may be a, um, a benefit to them of, of doing a particular thing. So first the conversation is, you know, how how much do you think this will help you? Um, and what I find with women is once they decide that they are committed to, to doing something, um, they are very likely to keep a log at least for a couple of days, uh, just noting when, when they have, for example, um, hot flashes and, uh, and how severe they are. Um, and so I find that women, once they're committed to the idea, are very likely to keep these logs, not for 
too long a period of time, but for several days. David, do you have any other thoughts on that? Or? No, no, I agree. I think that it's important because um, people tend to remember what happened to them in the last few days better than what happened to them a few weeks ago. And if you're going to start an intervention that may take some time for them to recognize the change, having an objective record of it will help them see that they are experiencing something uh, somewhat different. And that's been my experience for this kind of symptom and for other symptoms as well. So it brings the, uh, the woman, uh, the patient in uh, to the, uh, giving her a greater sense of control and of uh, being better able to monitor what's happening to um, where do you think that the conversation about the short-term benefits, if you will, in terms of the symptom relief and the implications of risk and benefit, do you see any opportunity for setting up that dialogue, um, at, you know, either before they come for the visit, during the visit when they're in the waiting room, but where do you think that dialogue might just happen? And can you think of three or four tips that you might offer our listeners about how they may set it up? Well, Judy, can I? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, um, all uh, I really have to do in my practice is, is make it clear that I have the time for them to tell me. Um, because the people who come in who are motivated by symptoms um, have that agenda when they when they come to see me. So, as uh, if as if as Dr. O'Keen said before, you leave some material around, and, and the people know that you're um, you know knowledgeable and willing to speak to them uh, on this issue. Uh, then I find the conversation develops fairly naturally. Dr. O'Keen. Yeah, and then the questions come up. Well, what about? I mean, that's sort of most women are very aware of. Uh, menopausal hormone therapy, and there's been lots of stuff in the media about it. Um, so part of that conversation then becomes, well, what about hormones? Um, and that is an entree into the discussion, okay, what about them? Now let, let's talk about um, uh, the benefits and risks. Uh, and then also let's talk about not only the benefits and risks, but what does some of the data suggest when you stop hormones? So I think in part that's, sort of, that's what we were saying earlier, that we now have to intrude into that conversation. Well, maybe you're okay with the uh, risks outweighing the benefits, uh, maybe not, and let's talk about what happens when you start, stop hormones and what do we see as the potential um, timeline on this. So I'm hearing you say having material ahead of time that helps people be prepared for that conversation, making the space of the time in the visit to at least prompt or have the conversation, and then having a, a list or referring back to the tool of suggestions that perhaps that many of the people have reported in your article as being helpful, uh, so that offers some optimism for people to manage themselves are at least three important steps that people could begin to test in their practice tomorrow. Yes. 
Okay, uh, very, very interesting. Thank you, all three of you, uh, Dr. O'Keen, Dr. Barad, and Dr. Kodigal, because I think we've really now set up this next uh, part of our uh, call today very nicely. A quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. We're now going to turn to questions from our callers. Uh, you may have questions of various types about the science, uh, the research itself, the methodology, and about this process which we've just been discussing about how to go about making changes in clinical practice, uh, these discussions uh, that were referred to with patients, uh, all this suggested by our speakers today. Uh, we hope to especially focus on uh, these changes in practice that might be recommended now. Please state your name and where you're from and be as concise as possible and tell us to whom your question is directed. Uh, we'll go ahead now with questions. All right, if anyone has a question, you may press zero one on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. We will then open up the lines one by one so each of you may ask your question. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press zero two. So once again, if you have a question, press zero one on your touchtone phone. And that will be just one moment for questions. All right, is anybody ready? Okay, and it looks like our first question will come from Anne with Lincoln Lancaster County Health Department. Please go ahead. Um, I would like to ask the authors if they could just encapsulate, uh, maybe each of them take a turn and state as <laughs> clearly as you can, how do you treat your patients now, whether they're taking hormone therapy or not? Uh, I mean, kind of give us a little um, standard, if you would. Okay, uh, Dr. O'Keen, you want to start there? Um, I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not clear on your question. Uh, are are you, how do we treat our patients? Uh, I'm sorry, what was the caller's name again? Anne, I'm sorry. And yeah, do you want to uh, give, give us kind of a, a scenario that, that you might be envisioning here based on what you've heard? Okay, I'll give myself as an example. Um, I am a um, woman in my mid-50s. I've taken hormone therapy for uh, 15 years. Uh, and I'm going to go to my doctor now. What would be the recommendation for me? You know, how, how would you go about it? Would you say, quit taking them immediately and deal with the symptoms, or would you say, uh, taper off? What, what would be your, your best advice? Uh, Dr. Right, David, go ahead. And okay. then I'll the, the, the question, I would ask you a question back. Um, basically, what is the reason that you started taking hormones? and what were you hoping to gain from them? Uh, the reason was because I uh, had a hysterectomy and had um, multiple symptoms, hot flashes, uh, sleeplessness, depression, labile mood, etc. And, and how quickly after your hysterectomy did you start taking your hormones? Uh, within six months. Okay. Well, the, the effects of, um, of Hormone withdrawal after a hysterectomy and oophorectomy are very significant. You can hit a wall like you had hit in the past. Um, many women experience when they go through a natural menopause, much less in the way of symptoms. Uh, in a similar way, we might expect if you stop cold turkey right now that you, since your person had symptoms in the past, are 
data suggests you may have symptoms again. So there has been some suggestion that if you chose to stop, um, that um, you might do better by weaning yourself off a little bit at a time, although right now we don't have any hard data uh, to support that notion. Um, but uh, symptoms are the one remaining reason why people, um, best reason why people take hormones today. Um, and, uh, but the current recommendation takes a short period of time. So I guess what I would suggest to you, if you have a notion of stopping, would be to try weaning over a period of time. Dr. O'Keen, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I guess I would also ask you another question. So I would agree with what Dr. Barad said. Uh, and I would also ask you another question. That is, have you uh, tried to stop hormones in the past? And what was your experience when you did that? Uh, yes, actually I have, and uh, it was rather bitter. I was actually <laughs> hospitalized uh, with suspicion of a heart attack. <laughs> oh, but that's not because of the hormones. Uh, well, actually, my doctor did that it, it did have some relationship. I, it was kind of a tangled mess, but in any case, I did, I did have return of symptoms in a yes. big way. It sounds like maybe, you said suspicion of a heart attack, so it sounds like it wasn't a heart attack. No, it wasn't. Okay, so it sounds like it may have also then potentially been anxiety or panic attack or, I'm not trying to, I mean, it sounds like there may be some things that were going on there um, that may have been related to either your concerns about going off hormones or, um, or to the fact that maybe hormones helped you a little bit with the anxiety, although our data do not uh, show that. Um, so I guess one of the things I would say there is that to potentially work with somebody um, around those particular issues, if that's a, a great concern. You mentioned depression and anxiety. Um, that may be sort of a signal to find a good person to work with around those particular issues um, and not necessarily need to depend on the have a feeling of depending on the hormones for that. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Barad, and, and then maybe we'll, we'll move on, okay? Yeah. I was just going to say to open yeah. up the, the question and, and move away from you in particular to a discussion with uh, a patient in general, um, we would want to, uh, you know, somebody who's successfully taken them for fifth, hormones for 15 years has... Um, you know, uh, not succumb to some of the early risks that we've found in the Greater Women's Health Initiative study, but you're still exposed to some of those cardiovascular risks as you get older and to the risk regarding breast cancer. Um, so the, the, the question uh, would come down to what your own risk profile is, which sorts of things you're most concerned about, what your family history of fracture is, what your family history of cardiovascular disease, and that's sort of individualization we have to throw into the mix right. of the decision about, you know, dealing with symptoms. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Anna. Very real life example of just how complex and individual uh, these scenarios and situations are. Uh, Katie, do we have another call? Not right now, but as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, press zero one on your touchtone phone. And we had one come through from Rosalind uh, from Jewish General Hospital. Please go ahead. Ah, uh, hello. Your, the evidence seems to be about Premarin and Pruvera, and there are many women who have never used that combination, who have, for example, used alternative use of progesterone other than Pruvera. 
or who have used a patch, for example. Mm -hmm. And why are these women being given the same kind of advice as women who took the Premier and Provera? Um, I could start that. Go okay. ahead, Dr. O'Keefe. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that there are lots of different preparations, and the study in the Women's Health Initiative um, had a very uh, particular preparation that was used. Um, and so one might say, well, why do you generalize to other preparations? Um, the, the reason might be because we don't have much data about the other preparations, and one might choose to generalize from this study because there is no other information available. Um, but you're absolutely right in saying, well, then maybe this doesn't apply to me. One might say that it probably has some relevance, but we haven't tested other preparations, as you're suggesting. Dr. Baran, did you want to add anything? Well, just um, for the all the, the general risks that we talked about in the general WHI paper, you might make that argument. I can't think of a biological mechanism that would suggest that other hormonal preparations would necessarily um, not have the same response to symptoms that we discussed in this paper. Uh, although I guess anything's possible. Okay. All right. Thank you very much uh, for that question and those responses. Uh, and any other questions in queue? Yes, we have one from Thomas with MMC. Please go ahead, Thomas. Yes, I, I am a subject matter non-expert in this field, <laughs> but I'm, I've been interested in the process that you're going through at IHI. Thus, you'll realize from my question. What I'm hearing from this study, what I extract from this study, is that the pre-therapy symptoms predict the post-therapy symptoms. Uh, and as we see in many areas of public health, it is the, the pre-event morbidity, morbidity predicts the post-event morbidity. Mm -hmm. And it's the intervening time, the intervening treatment or the intervening intervention, if you will, where we have to balance the benefit and the risk. So in other words, at the beginning and at the end, if the beginning and the end are equal, are any, this is probably a question more for your moderator, are any of the experts helping those of us in the trenches to develop models to discuss with the patient that the therapy that we are going to be talking about is not going to yield them any benefit after the therapy is done? Interesting question. Uh, maybe uh, Uma Kodogal, maybe Dr. Kodogal, I would turn to you a little bit around that, maybe that broader question, and then uh, if Dr. O'Keen and Dr. Barad also want to weigh in. I'm sorry, could we... um, the models for discussion of this dialogue have been well laid out in the literature, as you are, you may or may not be aware, in the conversations around choice of treatments for uh, prostate cancer, for breast cancer treatments. And as I can think about the components of this model, and uh, Dr. O'Keen and Dr. Barad, please feel free to add comments, there are, as I understand, four components to it. The first is really an explicit discussion and a walking through with the patient of how they could, um, of what that means. You know, simple sort of discussion of probability in terms that people could understand. So what's the likelihood of this versus the likelihood of that? Secondly, some presentation of materials by patients with different perspectives about the choices they made based on their lifestyle for one versus the other. So here's the risk, but here's my lifestyle, so I prefer to accept this risk to get this benefit. 
and that presentation from a couple different spectrums, both for people who chose things that may, uh, you know, where the risks were weighted differently versus where the risks may be lower. Thirdly, the patient sort of filling out in a very brief way they, what they want to kind of get out of life, so to speak, are about what part of their functional optimization they are interested in. And then fourth, the conversation between the clinician and the patient in this setting where the patient's gone through a little bit of the thinking, the tools have been set up to allow that dialogue to occur, and then the clinician and the patient then having an interaction that gets to the crux of the issues. I see that you like these three things. Here's things that are beneficial. Which of these would you like to choose? And then really since this ultimately comes down to self-management, if you will, how do I help you get started on your exercise? Or how do we know that this is working? So the nature of the dialogue then becomes one that's really deep where it's not simply a matter of providing information, but of getting into the details of this. Okay. Dr. O'Kane? Um, you know, I'll have to ask for a little clarity on the question Go again. Right Unless, yes. David, if you want to take it yeah, first. Yeah, I, I can hop in. Um, Go right ahead. I think what, what Thomas said is, um, my understanding of what Thomas said, correct me if I'm wrong, is that if, if uh, the major predictor of having symptoms after having stopped um, the intervention was having them before, um, then, you know, how do you bring that into the conversation when you're thinking about starting? Um, and uh, you kind of um, uh, framed it as though it were simply a resumption of symptoms that you had before. And the one factual um, correction is that the uh, incidence of moderate to severe symptoms at the beginning of the study was about 12%, um, but uh, that after the women who had been randomized to hormones, about 21% had symptoms after stopping. So that's actually an increase above what there was true at baseline. And among the women who had symptoms at baseline, 50% had recurrence of symptoms uh, after stopping. So okay. it's not really a, a gigo, you know, you get, you get out of the system what you put into it. It actually comes back a little bit more. Um, that's not surprising because we all, as clinicians, understand that if you're on hormones for a while, there probably would be a withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that question and uh, those replies. Uh, any other questions in queue? There are no further questions at this time. Okay. Well, we'll give people a chance to kind of think of some additional things. I wanted to maybe ask you, Dr. O'Keen, and feel free, Dr. Barad, to jump in. Uh, thinking a lot about the clinician, and I think one of the first callers used the uh, phrase sort of a tangled mess, and I was wondering if you maybe could help us or underscore the significance of your study uh, for and the findings for how the clinician today almost needs to change a mindset even further. We see this obviously as a sort of an evolving situation with hormone therapy, but how significant a change in mindset do you think is required uh, yet again uh, with your findings on the part of clinicians? Yeah. Um, I think that we have gone through a lot of changes in, over the last uh, decade. Uh, in use of hormone therapy. I think that uh, initially it sort of was the chicken soup for women once they started, or if you're vegetarian, I don't know what you would call it, the broccoli soup or something, um, for women once they started um, menopause, it was, okay, hormones, 
and it was sort of an automatic thing in, in many practices. I think once the WHI came out, or the information from WHI and also from the HERS study, um, uh, it was no longer automatic. At least it was a discussion about the, it became a discussion that it's no longer that the benefits outweigh the risks. So we really need to have some discussion. And I know when I talk to my colleagues about that, that that has, for many of them, um, been integrated into their discussions with women. I think we're now at sort of a third stage, which is saying it's no longer just a discussion about the benefits and the risks. It's also a discussion about needing to incorporate into that information the fact that symptoms are likely to return when they stop hormone therapy, so that that also needs to be uh, included in the decision process. So that's a, sort of a long-winded answer to your question. I think it's another step. So I don't think, I, and I think that that is a step that should be relatively easy to incorporate into a discussion uh, with women. It's just a, a third ingredient now um, that we need to incorporate in that discussion. Would you say that up until now there was somehow the assumption that there would not be uh, this level of this pronounced return of symptoms uh, once this, you know, uh, perhaps short-term, you know, course of treatment uh, was completed? Well, well, that's an interesting question in that I think anecdotally I certainly hear from my clinical colleagues, from some of my clinical colleagues, well, I sort of know that. You know, I know that there's, that for some of my patients there is a return of symptoms. Uh, but I think it wasn't um, quite as evident. And now we've got evidence uh, that says, yes, for many women there is a return uh, of symptoms and it, it definitely needs to be part of the conversation. Okay. Uh, Dr. Uh, Brad, I'm wondering, does this start to sort of, you know, add different things to your, uh, the kinds of things you have to think of uh, in terms of initiating conversations with your patients? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that Dr. O'Kane has summarized uh, very well uh, the kind of conversations we have to have. Uh, just, just to add to it, uh, the, the summary statement is um, people um, have a right to make choices, um, and today they're able to make choices about their health care based on a lot more information they had before. That brings an awful lot of responsibilities to both the physician to provide the choice, the, the information, and the patient to have to participate. Not all of us are comfortable making choices, and so it makes it somewhat uncomfortable for everybody. The bottom line here is that some people may choose, I don't want to have symptoms this year. I'm having you know, my daughter's wedding. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I can put it off for a year. That's a valid choice. You know, so somebody might make that decision, but it's about having information to base those choices on. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, any callers uh, with courage to ask some questions? <laughs> yes. We have one from June, and she's with the Methodist Lebenhauer Health Care. Please go ahead. Um, I was curious. I have seen a lot of herbal and over-the-counter substances to help with the symptoms. I was wondering if this, if there's any research that shows this to be a viable option or uh, to, as, an, as an alternative to hormone replacement therapy or can help ease the process of those who choose to stop the treatment. Yeah, I'll jump in for a moment mm -hmm. and start that. 
Um, there is research um, looking at lots of, you know, soy supplements and uh, some on black cohosh. Um, unfortunately, the research is not very conclusive. Um, often the preparation, so some find yes, some find no. Uh, usually the sample sizes are relatively small. So I don't think there is any, uh, in my review of the literature, any conclusive evidence that says any of these will, yes, help large groups, uh, you know, help significant number of women. Um, that research still needs to be done. I know that there is research presently going on looking at this. In fact, we at, uh, in my own group at UMass Medical School just got funding to look at phytoestrogens and in a randomized trial um, and looking at its effects on uh, hormones, uh, excuse me, on uh, hot flashes and night sweats. Um, so there isn't any good conclusive evidence. Yet when we looked at, when we asked, and when we asked women what they used, interestingly, that was not high on the list, which I was quite honestly very surprised about. And higher on the list was um, physical activity, um, talking to their uh, clinician, um, and uh, drinking fluids. Um, so, and even there, we don't have any substantial evidence that says one will work well for, large, for, for many women. Um, so it does come down to, for the woman, trying out some things at this stage, unfortunately. And I think that therein lies some of our dilemma. Um, but it, we can still work with our patients to say, and I'm a clinical psychologist, that is my uh, discipline, um, you know, have you thought about any particular ways to uh, help with this? Have you ever tried anything? How did they work for you in the past? Are you willing to give it a more concerted effort? Is it something that you enjoy doing, like exercise? For example, for some women, uh, is very pleasurable. Uh, so are you willing to study it on your own as a case of one right now? Um, so I, I think it doesn't come down to so much the evidence for any of these things as the self-management uh, and self-awareness part. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Barad, anything you want to add there? Well, you, you will note that even in our data, we did over time see um, uh, fewer symptoms, even among women who had been on placebo. Um, and uh, so one wouldn't, uh, if, if one of these alternative treatments appear to be otherwise benign um, and the patient believes in them, they may in fact have some placebo benefit in the best sense of the word. Thank you. We could probably sneak in one more question. Is there anyone, uh, Katie and Q? There are no further questions. Okay. We'll, we'll wrap up on our own. I'll sneak in one uh, quick one. Um, your respondent's mean age was 69 at the time of the survey. Based on your data, what can you tell us about symptoms in younger menopausal women? Okay. Uh, I'll jump in there for a second. In fact, Dr. Barad actually mentioned this earlier, um, that um, we did uh, look at women who were younger. We looked at women who were 50 to 54 at baseline. So that's the age where uh, many women uh, experience menopausal symptoms. Uh, and more, more than half of these women uh, using combined hormones who had symptoms in the, uh, at baseline, or in the past rather, 
also experienced these symptoms after discontinuing hormone use. So it was just as reflective for women who were younger at the more usual menopausal age than for the older women as well. Okay. All right. Dr. Barad, anything further you want to say on that? No, Oh, that's clear enough. Okay. Okay. Well, that is all the time we have for questions in our discussions. Uh, there will be a web-based discussion, however, a group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue this conversation with one another. You will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Look under Community then discussion groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you do have to register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. So we're coming to the end of the sixth in a series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. Thanks very much, Dr. Judith O'Keen, Dr. Thank David you. Barad, and Dr. Uma Kodigal for your knowledge and guidance today. And I would actually like to give each of you an opportunity to just make a, a brief uh, closing remark or two. Uh, Dr. O'Keen, why don't we start with you? Uh, okay. Thank you. Um, you know, I think the bottom line is that this study has provided us with some very important information um, that we can provide to our patients, and it's part of the mix of the information that's important uh, when women make decisions about use of uh, menopausal hormone therapy to treat menopausal symptoms. Dr. Barad. Yeah, I would, I would just reiterate what I said before, that uh, we can't be... Um, we're in a new age where people expect to have this information and expect to have this dialogue, and uh, it's responsibility of both physicians and patients to take advantage of the information and, and incorporate it so they make decisions that are right for themselves. So that's my bottom line. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Kodigal? Um, I think examining your practice, looking at how and where you set up the process to have the conversation with patients and facilitating self-management and the use of logs so people can keep track of what interventions help them will go a long way to helping women be more self-reliant. All right. Thank you very, very much. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on September 21st, and the focus will be the article, Impact of Varicella Vaccination on Healthcare Utilization, 1994 to 2002. And this article appears in the August 17th issue of JAMA. Look for further details on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether Author in the Room participants make use of clinical improvements offered by our experts. Today's discussion of symptoms following the discontinued use of estrogen plus progestin as menopausal hormone therapy suggest some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale. We are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. We thank all who've joined us today for taking the time to complete the surveys. Again, thanks to our guests, our speakers, and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day.